Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Rihanna's big Super Bowl surprise edition. It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. On today's show, Rihanna, you might have heard tell, she was the halftime act at the Super Bowl. She sang, she danced, uh, she vamped, all while revealing a baby bump we will discuss with, I don't know, extra special. She's an SFOP, an extra special friend of the program. <laughs> anyway, I'm introducing Nadira Goff. Uh, can't wait to talk to her about this. And then Kunk on Earth is a new TV show. It stars the English comedian Diane Morgan as her wonderfully stupid co-creation, Philomena Kunk. It's on Netflix. It's kind of a faux documentary, mockumentary format. And then finally... We continue our march to the Oscars with All That Breathes, a documentary about a pair of brothers desperately trying to save a bird population in New Delhi. Shanak Sen's breathtaking documentary is nominated for Best Featured Documentary. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Hello, Julia. Hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Greetings. Uh, Nadira, I just, why make it all formal? You're such an extra special friend of the program. We're also joined by Nadira Goff, culture writer for Slate. Hey, Nadira. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, what a wonderful occasion. Your piece about Rihanna is going uh, viral on Slate right now. Uh, Perfectly timely for us and apt. Let me just quote right from the beginning. After a nearly four-year performing hiatus, giving birth to her first child in a seven-year drought since releasing her last album, Rihanna finally returned to the stage. The run-up to her performance, you say, Nadira said, saw breathless debates. Will she use the moment to finally release new music? Will she compensate for abandoning her boycott of the NFL? Will she bring out a problematic artist or a redeemed one or no artist at all, dot, dot, dot. But uh, let's start with the performance itself. First, a little clip. Uh, Let's have a listen. Well, Nadira, as you point out, there's just tons of uh, takes and retakes swirling around this. Give me yours. So the good thing about writing my piece is that I was able to avoid giving my actual personal opinions on the performance. <laughs> I noticed that, yeah. 
Um, but I actually really enjoyed it. I don't know if it's just because I'm a humongous Rihanna fan or if it's because I don't have the high expectations of her that everyone else in the world seems to have. But I really enjoyed it. In fact, I wrote a piece before this piece about what I wanted it to be. And it was none of that. I got none of my wishes that were on that wish list. But I still thought she gave a great performance. She sang the hits. The dancing was great. You know, she may not have done that much physically herself, but I, you know, I think she's iconic. I think she's one of the more important artists, pop artists of my generation, at least. And I really appreciate her at least giving us something because it's been so long since she's given us really anything. I mean, it's been about six years since her last album. Um, The only song that she's released since then was the song that she did for the second Black Panther movie. And people have just kind of been hoping she would return. And so this kind of felt like a, you know, she was giving us crumbs, but I was appreciative of that. (laughs) Well, I want to hear what the things were on your wish list that you didn't get. Ah, so... My favorite Rihanna performance of all time is this televised live performance that she did during the 2016 VMAs where she was winning the um, Video Vanguard Award. So she did multiple medleys throughout the night. And one of the medleys that she did was a dance hall reggae medley. And it's a video that is just so life-giving. Like the energy that she has in that performance is amazing. The music, the way she remixes her own songs but underlays traditional and popular dance hall beats underneath them. It's just so impressive the amount of history of reggae music and Caribbean music that she's able to pack into that performance. And she turned the whole stage into a Caribbean nightclub. Like there were bodies everywhere. They were dancing. They were moving. It was smoky. People had like red solo cups as if they were drinking. And it was was such a beautiful celebratory performance. And it's also just like a performance that you can't help but dance to or move to when you watch it. And so I was really, really hoping that she would you know, stage a continuation of that moment, which she didn't at all. In fact, she went in the maybe complete opposite direction. <laughs> but, you know, I still enjoyed what she gave us. Yeah, your piece was really great, Nadira, and and really captured, I think, where I landed on the on watching her after mulling it over. I'm a huge fan of Rihanna. I've seen her live in concert. I She's probably one of my favorite working musicians today. I think she's, like, legendary as a musician and legendary as a pop star and like an image maker and a performer of kind of personal swagger Mm. and independence. And I feel like this concert was like a triumph of the second one. It was like a triumph of Rihanna being Rihanna, doing what she wants, having what she wants be generally amazing and impressive, but also like a little bit just she's just not an audience placator. It's so unusual for someone who is such a megastar to not to, to be so savvy about what our reactions will be to her, but also to like truly not be in it for how happy we're going to be when she does whatever she does. You know, like underneath <laughs> underneath so much performance is that like hunger or neediness, and she just. I don't know. She either doesn't have it or it's it's buried way down in there. So I will say that before it became clear that she was pregnant, my like hope and dream was that actually she just had a post-pregnancy body 
and was mm-hmm. like, yeah, guess what I didn't do before the Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show is like <laughs> go to fucking Tracy Anderson and like figure out how to be a whippet, which was is actually my preferred interpretation. Like the alternate history where she was just like, yeah, I had a baby a year and a half ago. That's what my body looks like. Bow down <laughs> is to me even better than. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing about. Rihanna is that it really earnestly could have gone either way of whether she was pregnant or not like because she would be the type of artist who would entirely disregard people's notions about what her body should look like or what she should do and how she should perform right exactly no I feel like my alternate theory of the case was like very plausible and deeply awesome and so then when I was like oh she's having baby number two well that's also cool congratulations I mean, I just have the dumbest question, which is, I guess, opinions are mixed on the overall, like, quality of the performance. But, like, it's like, wait, what? People aren't floored that this person got up on a levitating platform in front of whatever it is, 60,000 screaming people and a billion television viewers, probably not, but whatever, like 100 million, 200 million television viewers. And, like... She, like, didn't bring it enough? I mean, am I, like, being old-fashioned and patriarchal by saying, I don't know, if you're visibly pregnant, the fact that you got out there at all? I mean, I I don't know. I I personally was kind of blown away by it. I mean, as somebody who doesn't follow either of their careers really closely, I could— make a response to that on behalf of Beyonce fans who might say, well, I've seen a pregnant Beyonce do a lot more dancing <laughs> good, than Rihanna just good did. Good point. Good point. I but, know, I, but I actually want to push back on that because as someone who is also a Beyonce stan, when Beyonce was pregnant and announced her first pregnancy, I believe it was again at the MTV VMAs, though I could be wrong, she sang Love on Top and really just did a lot of bending at the knees. It's just that she has a very powerful, energetic voice. I think it's a testament to the different energies that these performers actually give mm-hmm. and not the physical movement that they were doing during the performances. And so it really annoyed me to watch a whole bunch of people on the internet be like, oh, well, when Beyonce was pregnant, you know, she did a lot more because she actually didn't. She's just notably a much more energetic performer. And I think even Rihanna, before she was pregnant, her performances were comparatively very subdued. You know, she she didn't do, she did more than what she did during the Super Bowl, to be clear. But like, she didn't really do as much as Beyonce ever did in terms of like dancing, energy, running around stage, you know? Mm. It seems like the danger in this performance came more from what Steve mentioned, the the levitating stage, which, I mean, the main thing that occupied my mind during the entire performance was, what is plan B here? (laughs) You know, like, what if the pulley (laughs) breaks or something? And I mean, she had no harness, right? She wasn't that high. She did have a harness. I think there was. Did she? Okay, I guess I didn't see the strings She was anchored in the back. You could see it. Okay, good. Thank God. Yeah, and I was thinking what an insurance nightmare it would have been to have (laughs) to put a pregnant woman on that stage. I mean, the NFL cannot afford to kill Dear God, yeah. I mean, I was, Nadira, I was in a room full of people at a Super Bowl party, and they were either substantially older than I was by 10 to 25 years or substantially younger by, let's say, 10 to 25 years. And I was like this one little middle aged, you know, nugget in the sandwich. And the room was blown away, right? I mean, I was like, this is, I, I, I have no stable sense of self. Like I, so I was blown away too, but I, I kind of thought what I saw was incredible. I really liked this performance and I personally felt the same way that you felt, which is that I would never do this pregnant. And so I was very impressed that she <laughs> ended up doing this pregnant, but I was in a room full of people who were very mixed on it. Some of us thought it was really great. Mm-hmm. And some of us really wanted her to give 
the performance of a lifetime. Yeah. And at this point, Rihanna is very, very calculated. She's someone who knows exactly what she's doing and knows how to maximize the attention and the sort of energy out of what she's doing when she's not actually doing that much. And at this point, she's much more of a businesswoman than she is a musician. And I think... You know, this was a moment where it was either going to steer her back into musician territory or was going to keep her going in businesswoman territory. And I think we kind of got an in-the-middle answer, which is like, I'm going to be a businesswoman, but I'm actually a mom now, and you have to get used to that. And I, <laughs> and I may or may I not do a Fenty important. Beauty pitch in the middle of my song. <laughs> and, you know, there are so many people who hypothesize that the whole entire performance would just be one large Fenty ad. And even then, she did the smart thing, which is she fixed her makeup in the middle of the show. If you know what that means, you know what that mm. means. But there wasn't a huge Fenty logo anywhere, you know? Yeah, and I also just love that again of just the humanness of the performance of like this is what my body looks like right now and uh yes i'm getting sweaty because i'm doing a crazy thing and i sort of care how i look on the camera like the 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 i love the moment with the powder product placement or no i mean <laughs> you do i it's funny because there is she knows how we'll respond I, i'm having trouble putting my finger on it she knows how we'll respond and she's fearless about how we, and by we, I mean like Rihanna fans everywhere will respond, but also she doesn't seem motivated by the response. Like she yeah. has like an inner, inner momentum, inner light, like inner mm. selfhood that just feels so rare to encounter in a celebrity. Like you, we see so many celebrities who are either just hyper skilled manipulators of what they're projecting right. onto us or, or have spent so much time doing that, that their brains are actually broken. Like right. they have truly right. been re rendered insane. I mean, you know, there was the fear that maybe Kanye would come out during all the lights and like, she just seems so whole, you know, she yeah. seems so self-possessed. She seems like she has such a healthy relationship with, with what she has built and what her career has become. And it's so nice to see that. Like that's the thing in all the regalness and the brazenness. She's also got this like, sweetness like this sort of mm -hmm. you know ponder replay like bubbly smile yeah. like she's got this sort of um lightness in the middle of all that fuck you which is part right. of why she's just so yeah. mesmerizing i think cynics would say that she's made enough money at this point and that's what's driving that <laughs> that sort of Fucking feeling money, is yeah. that right yeah is that she just has enough money to do whatever the fuck she wants and what she wants to do is nothing that you would expect or care about really just continuing to make more money via all of her multiple other business dreams i mean after this performance i was served ads on instagram to buy the background dancer outfits mm. through her you know through her uh clothing wear company and so cynics would say that she's just out to make money, but I, I agree with you, Julia. I think, sure, I'm sure she enjoys the money. I'm sure that's a partial driver, but I think that she is just very, very confident in the reaction that she's going to get. And she knows how to calculate that to a point. I mean, she has us all at the edge of our seats, right? It's, it's, I, I don't know any other artist that can do that without consistently producing or that has done it without consistently producing except maybe Beyonce but Beyonce's hiatus was much shorter and now Beyonce is giving us you know so much and so I I don't know of many other artists who have the command over their audience and fans in the world as she does well, I also loved that her opening song was bitch better have my money like that's a very funny song to open your super bowl show with at the moment when everyone's wondering whether you're still a musician or you're just a businesswoman like it's very true this was funny 
something that struck me when you were saying, Nadira, that they, that you were being pitched the um, the backup dancers' costumes is that my critique of the show and specifically of the you know costuming and dancing in the show has to do not with her but with the dancers. They were obviously all great dancers, but I really wish I understand why Rihanna didn't want to do a whole seductive vampy take off her clothes thing. But why didn't the dancers at some point take off their hazmat suits and let us see them actually <laughs> dance? All I could think of the whole time was how you know when you take a dance class, you're supposed to wear a leotard and tights, and that is so that the teacher can see if your body is moving in the right way. I mean, obviously, these are world-class backup dancers, and I was really sick of seeing them dressed in the, the white baggy thing, and I thought we were going to get a little male beefcake at some point along the way. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that the trend in uh, hip-hop dancing in general has sort of shifted from that standpoint. Nowadays, when you watch the most viral hip-hop dancer videos on Instagram or whatever it is, usually they're wearing baggy t-shirts and sweats. But I somewhat agree as much as I found the background dancer costuming, which I think I termed as a cross between astronauts and Michelin men, as much as I found that to be really captivating, there was a point where I was just like, okay, I need I need something to change. I need some sort of dynamics. And it can't just be raising and lowering the platforms again. Like someone should take something off. Someone needs to come out. Something should happen. And I think that that's a really smart criticism, which is that Rihanna didn't have to do anything. She could have just let all the background dancers do it all. All right, Nadira. Well, it's just great to have you back in the fold, if fleetingly, but please, please come back soon and, and talk more with us. Anytime, and especially if we're talking about Rihanna. Excellent. All right, check out Nadira Goff's piece on Slate, how Rihanna managed to deliver the most Rihanna Super Bowl halftime show possible. Okay, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm, what flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Typically, Dana, I'm sure we have some. What, uh, what do we got? Steve, we have but one item of business this week, and that's to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week was Julia's choice. She wanted us to talk about a recent article in The New Yorker about imposter syndrome called Why Everyone Feels Like They're Faking It. It's an article by Leslie Jameson, and it's a combination of uh, interview with the two women who created the concept of imposter phenomenon, as they called it, now known as imposter syndrome. Also sort of a personal essay on Jameson's behalf of her experience of this feeling, and then ultimately a critique and interrogation as to whether imposter syndrome is still a useful model for people to to think about in their own personal and professional lives. It's a really interesting piece, and we're going to talk about it in our Slate Plus segment today. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of the show. And if you are not, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. 
When you sign up, you will get ad-free podcasts. You will get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other Slate shows have them too. And, of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the wonderful writing on Slate. These memberships mean a lot to our magazine. They help keep it afloat. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that URL is slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Well, Philomena Kunk is the fictional alter ego co-creation of the English comedian Diane Morgan. She's a mockumentary ditz to rival Nigel Tufnell or Ali G. Kunk slash Morgan now has her own show on Netflix, Kunk on Earth. It takes its cue, its look and its feel, its just general tone from the great BBC documentaries about planet Earth or in this instance, human history. It features Morgan as Kunk interviewing wonderfully straight-laced and unhumorous English academics. I mean, the unhumorous is slightly unfair. Some of them apparently are in on the joke and do quite well. But she peppers them with the most dim-bulbed questions imaginable, just ludicrous non-sequiturs, you know, expressions of total ignorance and lapses in logic uh, imaginable. Why don't we listen to a clip? In it, uh, Philomena Kunk talks to an archaeologist about early humans. We often assume early men were stupid because they had big eyebrows and said, ugh, but in fact, they were pioneering inventors. They were the first men to use tools, which is something most men have forgotten how to do today, which is why they have to get someone in, a real man. How did early man make tools whilst walking on all fours? Well, we don't think that they walked on all fours uh, for too long. We're pretty sure they were walking upright for at least the last two million years. So did they make the tools with their front legs or their hind legs? Well, I don't think humans have ever been very good at making things with their feet, so yes, it would have been the front legs that they used for making tools. Right, so in leg terms, it would have been their top legs. Yes, I think they would certainly have used the top legs uh, for making tools, or or, uh, arms and hands, as we call them today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Julia, what can you say, right? It brings together the stupid genius of so much of British humor from, I'm sure it's well before Monty Python, but uh, up through, you know, Spinal Tap. And I mean, I understand Spinal Tap's a co-creation with an American, but, you know, on and on and on, um, Ali G. And this is just the latest installment to which one introduces these fantastically dry English academics who just don't really crack a sweat as they respond to her. Anyway, what'd you make of this show? Did it make you laugh or just too silly? What, what'd you think? Oh, I think I'm a little bit of a vote for too silly. And I, you know, I think it sort of seemed initially kind of like an obvious and dated set of mockumentary tropes. And then if you stick with it, you can see actually how subtle and sly some of them are. Like she, she's almost kind of a, a, you know, Yogi Berra type in that all of the things she says that seem slightly idiotic are actually profound in some fashion. Um, And then they start playing with form and types of comedy. Like in the second episode, she's trying to explain medieval life and she just goes into an empty room of a castle and, and just imagines what happens there and is essentially like miming for seven minutes of show um, while sound design, you know, makes imaginary tinkling glasses and heads being chopped off. The table is bedecked with haunches of venison, blackbird pie, roast goose inside a pig, 
the full <laughs> like, like her performance is so amazing like the deadpan she has this kind of wild elastic mouth that seems like it's drawn on with crayon and then it's always in this kind of a exaggerated faux faux serious frown um i don't know she's compelling but i the whole thing uh I watched three episodes only because I needed to talk about them with you guys. I would have turned it off 10 minutes in if I didn't have it as an assignment. I, I mean, Dana, this is such a, it's such a curiously persistent comedic form. I mean, The Daily Show and, and Colbert but both did it, of course, Ali G. But the it's not just the mockumentary format, but the sort of fake news presenter or interviewer or journalist in an utterly deadpan way asking person on the street or expert a question and it, it has a i think you and i have discussed or we've discussed on the show slight undernote of sadism to it am i right in finding that absent from this i i didn't feel as though these academics were the brunt of anybody's joke at all yeah i mean it's not social critique in the way that ali g was no right i mean it's it is like ali g which is a great comparison in that she's playing a character moving through the world and what we're laughing at is the brazenness of her impersonation of this incredibly stupid person yeah uh but it isn't it isn't like ali g and its social satire or colbert you know the old colbert when he was playing a character for example um and yeah, there is a real sweetness about the academics that they choose, who I assume to some degree have to be in on the joke, because if not, more of them would be either laughing or storming out. <laughs> you know? in, in particular, I want to point at this philosopher who she talks to, and I think mm. it's the third episode. Yeah. It's when she's talking about Descartes, and he's a he's an expert in Cartesian philosophy. And there's actually a wonderful moment between them where her question is so dumb, but it does actually get at sort of the, the paradox is of Cartesian my, philosophy. Oh, it's not mind pipes? It's the a, mind pipes it part. Is and, and the philosopher takes it very seriously. I'm sure he's talked to many students who are approximately yeah. that dim-witted and, uh, and breaks it down and sort of makes her bad question into a good question. That was a great moment. Your characterization is in fact a rather intriguing delineation of two major strands in current philosophy. Is that good? Excellent. Oh, great. But I would agree with Julia that this is not a show to binge. It's something that you would dip into once you watch. I watched all five episodes in a row just to get a sense of where it went. They do move quickly. Yes. And every one of them has at least one moment that's worthwhile. I mean, just truly silly, like the, the extended mime that Julia described. Um, but but you do start to see the formula pop out you yes. know, when, when you binge it. I think it's a very English thing. I mean, she's been around. This character is a little bit like Alan Partridge. You know, I'm thinking of that, oh, you know, that character yeah, sure. that, that Steve Coogan played for years in different formats, all different kinds of shows. And I get the feeling that she is probably a beloved figure in England sort of independently of what she's doing. You know, it's just Kunk is back and we're happy about that. There was a show called Kunk on Britain that I think is sort of analogous to this. This is, I think, just the first one that's made the jump to Netflix and to our shores. And so it arrives and we sort of don't know what to do with it. But mm -hmm. I think for just sheerly for the bravado of her performance, it's worth giving it a look. Yeah, and we should mention it's a it's a longtime character and a creation of Charlie Brooker, who I think is known best in America for being the creator of Black Mirror um, and sort of a, a skilled satirist and you know TV maker. But but yeah, I feel like I watched it without that context, and then I read a bunch of articles and went back and watched a few more, and I slowly began to realize like, oh, this is as if like a recurring character from SNL Weekend Update like got a show, like if Stefan had a show. Like, I don't know that Stefan's show would be great end to end for 25 minutes, but I'd probably be pretty happy if there was a Stefan show, you know, like 
if you if you come into it thinking like this is basically an extended SNL sketch, you're like, all right, well then there's like some good bits in it. That's basically my expectation level. But Steve, what did you think of her? I w- the thing I most well, so it made me laugh very hard, but sort of in spite of myself, without loving it and sort of finding the joke somewhat repetitive, but really adoring the academics as they. They're very deft and very English, to my mind, in the way they respond to this inanity. You know, Ali G and Colbert and on and on, they take a lot of their energy from the utter fatuousness and hypocrisy of the person being punked, which gives them a permission to be a kind of public sadist on all of our behalf. I mean, if you're interviewing Newt Gingrich, more power to you than, you know, allow him to make himself seem, or Giuliani, if you're honey trapping Giuliani, good God, yes, please. I mean, um, but here, we've lived to see the culture of expertise and non-STEM academia routinely degraded, publicly degraded by political forces arrayed against both, to the point where everyone, I think anyone with a mind or a heart or a soul recognizes that's a public tragedy. And so I don't think I could have tolerated for one minute a show that used those methods that that are used on Gingrich or Giuliano or the likes against these people. And the show doesn't do that. It really, I think, quite studiously doesn't do that. The butt of the joke is Philomena and the mentality of mass media that she represents and our general ignorance and the gap between even the even the viewer, right? Like and and actual this treasury, right, of expertise. I liked where the blade seemed to me to be aimed and it made me laugh. But I agree this is like a fun sampler. It's not a bingeable feast. Yeah, I think you're right that the intent of the show is not to mock the academics, but I did actually squirm during some of those scenes. Like, I think they were largely in on the joke, but not entirely, you know, and I, and there was some reporting about it that, you know, I think it's like if you got invited to go on the old Jon Stewart Daily Show at a certain point, or mm-hmm. like, there was a quote from someone saying like, oh, yeah, sometimes their kids would be like, oh, my God, Kunk, you've got to do it. Like, Certainly some of them knew they were in on the bit, but there's just a, I don't know, there's the mock part of the mockumentary setup built into those interactions. And I agree that watching the various varieties of like genteel British um, eloquence <laughs> in response to her to her idiocy <laughs> is fun. But there are a couple moments where the professors seem put on the spot or on the back foot that I was just like, why are we still here? It's yeah, like... I know. Years into this conceit, I I don't want to see these people put in this position. Like, I just don't. I don't like it. No, I agree. I think the freshest parts of the show are when she's not interviewing academics, when she's either, like you described, Julia, miming an entire arrow, (laughs) bow and arrow (laughs) battle taking place in a medieval banquet with nothing in the room but her. Or there's some really funny moments. I wish it had gone even further down this route of making fun of the recreation uh, trope in, in documentaries, right? So yeah. there's a moment she's talking about Jesus Christ and there's an actor, a bearded, handsome Jesus uh, doing carpentry, yeah. but she's in the room with the actor and there's sort of a spatial interaction where as he's moving the boards off of his sawhorse, he's almost hitting her every time. It's so ridiculous, but just the idea of kind of breaking open that ridiculous cliche of, you know, the reenactment, which is, you know, right? Doesn't your heart always sink oh, when there's God, a historical yeah. reenactment in a documentary? All right. The one thing I will say is that I had the I have the weirdest like 
you know, uh, reception history with Spinal Tap, which I now regard unequivocally as the funniest movie ever made, is I didn't find it funny the first time. And it was only as it began repeating on me, and then I watched it, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it 50 more times, that it becomes as funny as it is. And this has a little bit of that in some sense. Like, I'm laughing. This is funny. And then we played the clip and I was like kind of in stitches. It's just so courageously stupid. And um, I'm inclined to keep going. I, I've watched uh, three of them and I think I'm going to keep going and I'm start of, sort of starting to fall in love. Okay, it's called Kunk on Earth. You can find it very easily on Netflix. Uh, we're, we're sort of, well, it's not that we're split, but we're waffling interestingly i think so it's always great to hear from our listeners shoot us an email tell us what you thought okay moving on this podcast is sponsored by cloud optimizer as a business owner or it manager are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why it's time for cloud optimizer as you migrate your business to the cloud what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy but cloud optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, well, black kites are scavenger birds. They're birds of prey. They're common in New Delhi, apparently. And as their name suggests, they fly by riding the thermals without really moving their wings hardly at all, often not at all. Um, they're very beautiful. I mean, they're objects of possible aesthetic contemplation and joy. But they also serve a critical function within the rapidly degrading ecosystem of Delhi. But the world of refuse and effluvia is proving to be too much for them now. And they are literally now dropping out of the skies. Two brothers fight to save the endangered kite population of Delhi in the film All That Breathes. It's a, I mean, I think, breathtaking documentary from the filmmaker Shaunak Sen. It has been nominated for Best uh, Feature Documentary. Uh, therefore, we're talking about it now. The, the film is uh, not in English. Uh, it's in Hindi. So we can't share any dialogue from it. But we can share one of its many sophisticated soundscapes. It's, it's an amazing sounding and looking movie. Um, this particular audio clip has flies buzzing and goats moaning, whatever goats do, and, uh, and much, much more. Have a listen. Dana, this this movie is particularly hard to convey. 
its look and feel uh, in a, any kind of an audio clip, but maybe you could you could help with that. But first, I'm just really curious. I'm dying to know, in fact, what did you make of this documentary? Well, I mean, first of all, let me just say kudos to our producer, Cameron Drews, for yeah. finding that audio clip, because yeah. I had thought, how are you going to get across the feeling of this movie? But I think something that you hear there of the layering of nature and technology is really visually what the movie is constantly, constantly doing as well. Yeah. And uh, I, I really feel like some of the the... The observational nature of the documentary was actually uh, audible there. Well, okay, first of all, this is one of my favorite movies of last year. It was on my 10 best list. I'm rooting for it at the Oscars. I may make it my one movie that I actually emotionally invest in because it would be so wonderful to see the director, Sean Oxen, get up and accept an Oscar for this movie that is so incredibly timely without at all being uh, didactic. Um, it's, mm. it's a movie about climate change in the most profound way where, mm. you know, there's absolutely no soapbox mounting and uh, and not even really any sort of um, lauding of the two brothers who run the, the bird rescue sanctuary that it's about as do-gooders. You know, it's not a, a let's praise the do-gooders kind of documentary. Um, no. It is absolutely uh, attuned to just the world that it takes place in, which is the director's world. He lives in Delhi, and the idea of this, this documentary, he said in interviews, came to him because he was driving in a traffic jam one day and saw a kite drop out of the sky, you know, just fall from this group of birds that was flying overhead. And he started to wonder what happens when a bird drops out of the sky in Delhi. He went home and Googled it and ended up coming across the story of these two brothers and their bird rescue sanctuary and following them for three years with three different cinema photographers uh, to get the moments that really kind of can't be described. It's a, this is a very experiential movie. And uh, yeah. and you sort of have to embed yourself as a viewer the way that he embedded himself in into their world. So, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love this movie, but I feel like I, it, it, it explains itself so well that it's hard to know what to say about it. But I could not be more um, entranced. Yeah, Julia, I mean, I've never been more delighted to have Dana articulate what I felt so perfectly. I'm flummoxed at what I'm going to say. But there is something about the embeddedness of the viewer in the movie that echoes the embeddedness of the documentarian, which echoes the embeddedness of these two remarkable saviors about which there is no didactic or soapboxy glow. There's also no alarmism in this movie, though it's about a very alarming reality. What did what did you make of it? I loved this movie, and I it, you know I feel like I sometimes am a skeptic when it comes to documentary on this show because when documentary seems to be pretending to be journalism but clearly playing by different rules, it sets off my editor alarms, and I have trouble getting the like chirp 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 to go off and let me watch it. Um, mm-hmm. And then when a truly transcendent documentary comes along, you're like, oh, yeah, this is why people do this, <laughs> because you can actually get to a truth more evocatively and in a bigger way than you can through pure journalism. And the thing that felt so effective about this, this was like a more effective creed core about environmental degradation than any actual creed core I've ever encountered, you know, when someone's grabbing your lapel and telling you to care about the degradation of the beauty of the earth, you're like, well, I'd let go of my lapel first, you know, <laughs> you know, like, there's just a resistance no matter what the message is, at least if you're me. And I loved how this movie used the techniques of filmmaking. And they talk about how they how they approached the camera style and this sort of like slow 
glacial panning approach to the whole panorama. But it treats the the bird rescuers as animals too, mm. right? Like we are all just creatures finding a way in our environment. And it, it sort of treats everyone as an animal and every every creature as human <laughs> at the same time. It like blurs the boundaries between them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's talking about adaptation and how are, how are the kites adapting to the city, um, which were the birds of prey that used to come to the city. And, you know, how is this family and small community adapting to rising violence in Delhi? And, you know, they're just moments where the the brothers and the and the crew that's rescuing the birds will sort of like pause and look and tilt their heads at each other and then you'll see kites pausing and looking and tilting their heads at each other and you know meanwhile just peacefully showing us just trash everywhere and birds plummeting from the sky mm. it's so effective as a portrait of where we are and how in fact we're changing the world so slowly that we don't see it. We just adapt to it. Right. Um, I So this is but by far my favorite movie of the year, fictional or documentary. Um, it makes me angry that it's not nominated for uh, Best Picture, period, uh, no qualifier. Um, I love everything about the movie. Among the things I love most about it is how self-reflectively philosophical, especially I think one of the brothers is, he speaks, and he's the one who at first you think might be the sort of, to the extent the movie has any villainy at all, and he's a bit of an overbearing asshole, but it's just an older brother, younger brother, toing and froing. Um, And in fact, you get beyond thinking that very quickly, as soon as he begins to speak to his own sense of and he never is as pretentious as this, right? So let me just quote him, and, and also part, some of these are him quoting his, his uh, deceased mother. Nature will find a way to absorb waste. Think of the city as a stomach. Kites are the microbiome of the stomach. They eat away our filth. And it said there's no moralistic snarl to it. And and their own – another thing is their, his, he speaks to their own sense of – Hopelessness isn't the word because they they do what they do with the steadiness and commitment that, that couldn't possibly arise out of hopelessness. But he admits Delhi is a gaping wound and we are a band-aid on it. Man is the loneliest animal trapped by speciestic difference. Um, wouldn't And then he quotes his mother from which the title of the movie comes, one shouldn't differentiate between all that breathes. Um, the spiritual and the concrete for these brothers and arguably for all of us, though we refuse to acknowledge it, are simply one thing. The movie is so deeply spiritual. It actually takes that word that we've turned into a vacuous decal and, you know, and and imbues it with something, I think, substantively real in some sense. Like, it's a movie about how to enact the human spirit as an integral epiphenomenon of the natural world in the world in a concrete way um, that's about more than just mindless yuppie self-enhancement, right? This isn't doing yoga. This is injecting one's spirit into the world as an expression of gratitude for the life the world injected 
into one. Yeah, these two brothers are truly living that philosophy, right, day to day. And the one that you quote especially is really aware of it and very thoughtful about it as as it's happening. And it's also worth mentioning that they're doing it on a shoestring. I mean, when we say they're operating a bird rescue center, it sort of sounds like, oh, well, they have this business. Well, no, they don't. They have a business where they make soap dispensers in their basement in order to survive. And, you know, they as a essentially a shoestring operation on a very small budget, although this movie has brought them some more donations and and, and I think a better location, um, you know, they're just creating things out of chicken wire and, you know, they're figuring it out as they go along as non-professionals. Although toward the end of the movie, one of them does start to go into a, a training program and start to professionalize himself more. But something I feel like we're not touching on at all as well, it's just that, yeah, they are incredible people. They're, the movie's full of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the assistant who works with them, who's this slightly younger man, is incredibly sweet and funny and becomes this sort of figure of uh, somewhat clownish but very affectionate um, teasing in the in the creation of their bird rescue sanctuary. And, yeah, you really get to know them as these individual, original, very odd people doing an odd thing uh, in the world. So so that I think that contributes to the, it not having that starchy do-gooder feeling that it thankfully doesn't have. Something else about it that we haven't really mentioned, but you hear it in the audio clip, is that it's about animal life in Delhi in so much of a richer sense than just the oh, birds, yeah. right? And so the very first shot we see is of this kind of field of waste with these rats running over it. And, you know, the rats are filmed right at rat level, very kind of lovingly. You know, there's there's wild boars and pigs and goats. And you just really experience Delhi as this layered city in which wildlife and humanity are existing side by side, not always peacefully. There's an, an incredible shot, maybe my favorite moment in the movie, that involves rack focus, right? That technique where you shift the focus from one plane Mm, of -hmm. of the field to another and a snail and there's a moment that you know there's without spoiling what it is there's something big and human and somewhat disturbing happening in the main field and the camera just racks focus and that becomes blurry and in the foreground you see this one snail moving very slowly across a log or a board or something like that and it's it's just such a visual enactment or you know kind of emblem of what the whole movie is trying to do which is Look at both things at once, you know, but know how to shift your attention and make you look at the Mm. thing it wants you to see. Yeah, I love both the specificity of the way in which it portrays these characters and then also the lack of adulation of them. Like there's a moment where the wife of one of the brothers is pointing out that there are these protests and um, kind of political realities happening near them and says she's planning to go and suggests that perhaps her husband should go. And he's like, well, I can't, the birds need me. Like nobody else does this. And then he shuts the door. They continue to have this debate, but he sort of remembers that he's being observed and actually wants to preserve some privacy and the camera, you know, which almost seems like a character in the movie sort of like listens for a bit and then decides to give them their privacy. It's like a beautiful moment. But I also, um, you know, this, this adaptation to life in Delhi of, of feeling purpose and meaning and in, in rescuing these birds and teaching oneself how to rescue birds and taking that on as a purpose and a mission and an identity, you know, like any purpose or mission or identity, it's not all, it's not without consequence. I am a bird watcher who has done nothing for the birds relative to these guys, but it reminded me of a moment in my family where my son 
was like, Mom, you are always looking at birds. You are never looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Which has like become, become one of the sayings of our family. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it wasn't, you're always looking at Twitter. You're never looking at me. <laughs> She's looking at literal Twitter, tree Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, the movie is All That Breathes. It's pretty easy to see. I don't think you have an excuse. I found it on Amazon Prime. It's on HBO Max. It's a variety of uh, a la carte purchase places. So uh, check it out and let us know what you think. Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I have a sort of nested endorsement based on a topic that we almost did this week. We wound up not talking about it because Rihanna was so um, was made such a, a media bomb with her Super Bowl appearance. But we were going to possibly talk about the songwriter Burt Bacharach, who died at, I believe, 94 years old last week. And the day that the news of his death broke, I went home and just went on a Burt Bacharach binge, which is really my actual endorsement is just do that for yourself. Go on YouTube and start looking at stuff and you will find incredible things. Him sitting at the piano accompanying Dionne Warwick and Mm. Barbara Streisand and Dusty Springfield and him singing himself. And, you know, you'll just find your own way through Karen Carpenter, all kinds of wonderful interpreters of his songbook. But specifically, I want to send people down the road of this live concert from 1998 that he did with Elvis Costello, um, connected with their album Painted from Memory, which you maybe know. You know it, Steve. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic yeah. collaboration it between is. the two of them. I remember loving it at the time, but I was not aware that they had taken the show on the road to some degree. At least they did a show at the Royal Festival Hall, which you can hear the audio of the entire thing on YouTube. Uh, I haven't found the video of the entire show, but there's video of just one song, which I think is a great teaser for the, the Bacharach Costello collaboration and may send you down the road of of listening to that album and that live show and that song is god give me strength Mm. which is i think maybe the you know the centerpiece of that album just an extraordinary um lost love ballad that really brings together the the best of both of them and maybe i was washed out like a I cannot imagine if you're a fan of a, a beautiful, painful, love-struck ballad that you will not groove to um, God Give Me Strength at the Royal Festival Hall. We'll put a link to the YouTube um, on our show page, and then I hope that sends you down a very deep and pleasurable Burt Bacharach rabbit hole. Oh, I cannot wait. Uh, Julia, what do you have? So I'm I'm appreciated, admired, enjoyed Rihanna's halftime show, but I also did feel like I was sad, as we discussed, that we sort of missed out on Rihanna, the powerful musical artist, in, and instead got Rihanna, the powerful image maker. Um, so we started, and, and my children were very unimpressed. They were like, she's not moving. What is this? Like, not into it. Um, so we started talking about halftime shows, and we pulled up on the screen after the show ended on YouTube, um, what is probably the best halftime show ever, which was what one of my children asked. And my husband very quickly had the answer uh, on hand, which is Prince in 2007. Mm. And I had seen this live and loved it, but hadn't ever gone back to it or really, you know, spent much time thinking about its mythos. But Prince did the halftime show in 2007 in Miami in the pouring rain. Come on, y'all. Purple rain, purple rain. 
Don't it feel good? Only wanna see you, see you. Can I play this guitar? It's just pouring the whole time. The stage is slick. His entire musical, his entire like production core is just him, multiple guitars, a sweet outfit, and like twin six feet tall women in like crazy stilettos just like bopping behind him. Just two of them just rocking out like, wow, this is the best music I've ever heard. <laughs> like there's not even that much choreography. They're just like, yes, I love this. <laughs> and a band. And it's just such a beautiful, confident assertion of musicianship. And of course, Prince himself is iconic and and an image maker and employs aesthetic and thought about he was received and gave up his name and invented that signal and or had it handed down to him from on high or whatever the mythology of it is. I mean, he's just like a beautiful weirdo of his own. But he used the Super Bowl stage to just perform you know and played some of his hits played like a Foo Fighters song to their to their like delight alarm surprise you know happiness um went back to all along the watchtower you know really gave the guitar center stage like it's I just go watch it 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 was great at the time but it was really amazing to see especially after the last three years of these um Super Bowl halftime shows you know, produced in part by Jay-Z, which are high on kind of production design. But this was just like a man and his music on stage in the rain. And so after we watched it, we also went and they found that there was kind of like a how did that halftime show happen documentary, which frankly, a documentary isn't that great. It's like eight minutes. We'll put a link to it as well on the show page. But um, it starts with the producer waking up, seeing this like heavy Miami rain, calling Prince apprehensive, so it's raining. Seems like it's going to be raining tonight. And he said Prince's response was like, can you make it rain harder? <laughs> <laughs> and he just leaned into it, used it as a special effect. Anyway, so go check out Prince's Halftime Show. Check out this documentary about it for a few great moments. There's also a ringer oral history actually by former Slate intern Alan Siegel of it. Um, it's just, a, it's, it's a internet rabbit hole worthy of your deep dive. Oh man, two rabbit holes. Oh, yeah, my work day's done after we, we wrap here. Um, all right. Well, uh, I uh, read something I just did this week that I admire so much. I have to have to endorse it. Um, it's an essay in the Dublin Review of Books, which is I just think has been crushing it for years now. It's called Problems, Problems by uh, Johnny Lyons, who uh, introduces us to his admiration for the American philosopher Thomas Nagel, who's absolutely one of my heroes. Um, what I love about the essay is that it positions Lyons' own appreciation slash argument about Nagel between these two possible interlocutors or implied inter interlocutors. One is the sort of technical slash professional philosopher and a person who's totally unfamiliar with philosophy and is like, well, why would I bother with this at all? And what I love about Lyons is he uses, with ample quotes from all of Nagel's career, he, he, he sort of wins his way between these two possible critiques of Nagel as a way of really reviving the enterprise of I think philosophy as as just as an urgently necessary human endeavor, and um, 
while not taking the focus away from um, from Nagel in the least, uh, I just think it's an exemplary piece of writing. It itself exhibits all of the virtues that he's praising Nagel for. I mean, it couldn't be more simply, more elegantly uh, written and argued. It's utterly accessible to any curious, you know, human being who can read. And it's it. I, I just I loved it so much. I emailed the author. I thought it was really. I I, I said this is what we're all striving for you just did this so beautifully um anyway it's called problems problems it's uh in the dublin review of books which means it's online um easy to find by johnny lyons just a a really lovely um essay julia thank you so much thank you dana thank you that was fun it was fun yeah really really good topics this week You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Adira Goff, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.